What is up, everyone, and welcome to episode 468 of Combo's Court, and you know who it is, I am Combo. Today's show, Michael Kasky, Blow Main of CBS Sports, joins in to talk Sixers, basketball, and more. We discuss Joel Embiid being named the NBA MVP, the NBA playoff series between the Sixers and the Celtics, and we discuss the Dylan Brooks Memphis Grizzly situation, and much more. Just a fantastic conversation with Michael. You can catch Michael on Twitter at TheRealMikeKB. That's T-H-E-R-E-A-L-M-I-K-E-K-B. You know you can catch me on Instagram at 1-2-Combo. That's O-N-E-T-W-O-C-O-M-B-O. Intro music by Luca Beats. Let's get into it. Sports, man. Um, I mean, tough loss yesterday, but uh, what's the vibes, man? You know, I, I think it's pretty positive. I mean, obviously, the way they lost game two was pretty jarring with Embiid coming back. But going into that series, if you told the Sixers or Sixers fans that you're leaving Boston with a split, uh, I think, you know, I think most people would take that, especially a split knowing that you have the MVP back for, you know, the back end and the rest of the series. Um, basically you have home court advantage now, obviously three of the next five possible games would be in Philadelphia. Um, if the series was to go the distance, which I think is a, a, you know, big positive for the Sixers, obviously. So they have some stuff to work on and improve, uh, you know, integrating MB back into the lineup after you missed a couple of games, but overall, you know, I think the vibes around the team are, are pretty positive. I think they feel good about getting that split and getting, you know, a game back under Embiid's belt where he got some of that rust off and got some of that, you know, a couple of weeks away, was able to work back into a groove. So I think we're, they're expecting to see, you know, a better version of Joel Embiid in game three. What is positive vibes, I think, is Embiid winning the MVP, full transparency. I don't believe he should have won the MVP, but you got to be happy for the guy, right? You have to be happy for him for everything he went through. Can you speak to Embiid's evolution from becoming an injury riddled rookie to now the MVP. Yeah, absolutely, man. And it's fair. You know, there was Giannis I thought was deserving Jokic, obviously for the third year in a row. It's a testament to how much talent is in the league. I think it was good for Joel after coming so close twice in a row and continuing to elevate his game to be rewarded with that, uh, that MVP award I thought was nice, but from someone that's covered him since he was drafted in, in 2014 in Philadelphia, it's been really interesting because I, I didn't forget there was a whole lot of people uh, local media fans in the city and national media that were saying, you know, this kid was going to be a bust, especially after that second injury. You know, he missed the rookie year. That happens when he got injured again and had to miss his what would have been, you know, his second year in the league. There was a lot of, you know, doubt, a lot of like skepticism, a lot of pessimism around him, potentially ever even getting on the court, you know, consistently, let alone developing into a perennial MVP candidate. So, you know, it's a testament to him, obviously, for overcoming those injuries. He talked about there was, you know, dark times where he wanted to walk away from basketball. He thought about quitting because all of the 
the outside noise was getting to him. He was a young kid that didn't have the experience, wasn't even, you know, really familiar with a lot of things uh, around the league. And it, it was tough for him. So he deserves a lot of credit, I think, for overcoming that. I think the Sixers deserve credit for, you know, showing patience with him and not, you know, rushing him out on the court, allowing him to kind of progress at his own rate. And even when he finally got out there as a rookie, you know, there was time, you know, games off, time uh, restrictions and things like that. They really let him slowly come into his own and they've been reaping the benefits ever since. So it's been cool to watch his evolution and his development into, you know, obviously one of the most dominant players in the league today. Yeah, I think it's a huge problem to label somebody a bust so early. Like, we're seeing it with Chet. There, I mean, it's crazy. Like, they people even talk about Wemby, and the guy hasn't even been injured. Like, obviously, everybody has their issues, but it's like people label players busts, and, you know, he's just super injury-prone, and they're, like, in the first step of their career. It's a little crazy. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And Joel is now a great example, and we hope a guy like Zion, who's starting to get that label now, right. And to kind of shed that and move forward. And I think Joel is a great example for some of these guys that do deal with injuries like a Chet Holmgren or other guys, you know, early in their career that, you know, you can overcome that and not only be a good player, you could be the MVP. So I think that's a nice precedent to set that Joel has done uh, with that. Whenever you put two stars together, there's also rumblings, negative rumblings, like, well, these two guys, you know, be able to coexist. And you definitely heard that whenever there was any kind of minor struggle with the Sixers or Embiid and Harden, all right, but there was no real information that they weren't all right. Now we see um, Embiid get the MVP and Harden gives them with that Rolex. Can you speak to their relationship? Yeah, man, from, you know, an observer perspective in the locker room, it's great. It, it, it really seems great. Harden is, you know, takes kind of like the joking, jovial, like older brother role. He kind of like picks on Joel and pokes fun at him and things like that. And there's a genuine bond off the floor. And I think you see that translate to on the floor this season. Obviously, they had great chemistry in that two-man game. Uh, Harden had more assists to Embiid than any other player in the league had to any other player. I think Halliburton and Buddy Heald were second by like a wide margin. So that chemistry is clear. And like you said, there's been rumblings about Harden since he signed in Philly. I don't know what his future holds. I think this series in particular will probably go a long way toward, you know, deciding what he ends up doing in the summer. But if he does end up leaving Philadelphia, at least from anything I've seen or heard, it's certainly not because of the relationship with Joel Embiid. He I think he thoroughly enjoys playing with him. He hasn't minded and almost embraced taking that, not a backseat, but that secondary role where Joel's clearly the go-to guy on this team and Harden's kind of embraced being the, you know, the playmaker and the distributor and a secondary scorer. Uh, so, you know, I think they really like each other uh, off the court. They like playing with each other on the court. But again, you know, the NBA is crazy and that's no guarantee that James isn't going to leave this summer. But like I said, if he does, I don't think it will have anything to do with his relationship with Joel. Speaking of James, he was making playoff Harden look like a real thing in game one, right? Um, obviously a huge difference from game one to game two. You have to add and be back at some point and, was this a take a step back to take a two steps forward kind of thing for you from your perspective? Yeah, man, that's a, a great way to put it, actually, because I saw a lot of people saying that, you know, they probably shouldn't have played Joel in that game after the way it turned out. But the way I look at it is you're you're probably going to lose that game anyway. I think the stat is that the past 15 times a home team has lost the first game in a se uh, second round series. They come back to win that second game. So, you know, Boston was going to come out to not, you know, they, they weren't going to want to come back to Philly down 0-2. They were going to come out hard. They were going to be favored. And at that point, you know, you have to get a game under Joel's belt where the first game back, he was going to be, 
you know, a little bit rusty. It's been a couple of weeks. There's always that feel out period. I know, you know, personally from dealing with injury issues, when you first come back to ball after being off for a while, you don't feel like yourself. I, I had a pinched nerve that I had like for the past like two months, just started playing ball again in a couple of weeks. And those first couple of times I'm like, you know, does this hurt? Is this going to bother me? Things like that. There's a feel out period and it's going to impact your game. And I think we saw that from Joel last night. So getting that out of the way, I think was huge. Now you go to game three tomorrow night here in Philly. He's going to get the MVP award in front of the home crowd before the game. They're going to, you know, it's going to be nuts in there. And I think he'll feel better having that game already under his belt. He'll feel more confident in his movements, you know, in the things that he can do out on the floor, which bodes well, obviously, I think for the Sixers. So I get why people say after you win that first game, why not roll it back out and see if they can pull out another one. But, you know, that win took a, a Herculean effort from James Harden that, you know, were you going to get that again in game two? Probably not. It would be asking a whole lot. So, you know, you get Joel back out there, you leave Boston with the split and now you come back game three tomorrow and he's feeling, you know, better having got that out of the system and ready to roll. I think. I know the word analytics is a polarizing term, but we did see, a great shot profile from James Harden in the first game. A lot of mid-range. Would you like to see more mid-range Harden going forward? Absolutely. I thought it, the first game was really impressive because he really scored from all three levels. Like yes. a lot of mid-range shots, obviously a lot of threes, the step back threes, and he got to the rim a decent amount, uh, especially early on. You could tell he kind of came out with the mindset like, all right, Joel's out. They really need me to be aggressive. I think you saw that in that first quarter. And I think he just needs to keep that mindset even with Joel out there. I was a little you know, miffed or disappointed, I guess, last night that he, you know, went immediately back into that kind of deferring mode. I thought all the Sixers did really with Joel back in there. There was a lot more standing around than we saw in that first game. And I think, you know, Joel's, even though he's out there, he's not, you know, clearly quite at 100% yet. And I think Harden needs to, you know, realize, hey, I need to stay in this attack mode and this aggressive mode that I was in game one. It worked so well for us. And if he does that, it's only going to open things up for Joel and make things easier uh, for him too. So I, I would like to see more of everything from James and especially mid-range because when he's in that mid-range you know, mode, that means he's getting by his first defender. Usually he's collapsing the defense. He's getting into the paint. And then at that point, you know, he has that mid-range. They got the shooters around him. Joel will be there. So, you know, the more he can just be aggressive and get into the middle of that Boston defense, you know, the better for Philly, I think. What adjustments do you feel the Sixers have to make heading into game three? Well, first, I really think they just need to settle down. I thought yesterday they were really out of rhythm and out of sorts, which, you know, was to be expected to an extent with Embiid coming back in and after they had played. But also, I think they just really need to settle down, like, offensively and get him into where he thrived during the regular season, which was, you know, the nail and the extended elbow area. Thought they, last night, they tried to get him, you know, because Boston was playing him with smart, sometimes Grant Williams, smaller guys. I thought he was too eager to get him in the post and, like, punish them. And it led to some turnovers bad shot selections, Boston would send a late double and kind of muck up the offense. I think this time, instead of being reactionary, I think the Sixers need to set their, you know, their offense and be like, listen, we're giving the ball to Joel at the nail, double if you want to, it's going to leave shooters, don't double, it's going to leave him and, you know, his favorite area on the court in one-on-one -on -one coverage. And it's, you know, makes it tougher for Boston's defense. I thought the last game, the Sixers were really reactionary rather than being the ones, you know, making the first move. So I think they just need to be more aggressive I think Doc Rivers said something along those lines in the post game, uh, in his post game media session last night. So I would just expect, you know, more touches for Joel, but in a different area and more you know, aggression on the offensive side. I love when Joel gets into his hezzy pull game from the foul line. Like it is exactly. just so smooth for his size 
And, and it's unstoppable. Just, you know, it puts it, the defense in such a quandary because if you send two, they have the shooters. And if you don't, like you said, he's going to make that 90, 95% of the time. Yeah, outside KD, I don't think I enjoy watching any other player shoot the hezzy pull more than it's just so smooth, right? Especially with that size, man. It's just, you know, it shouldn't be that smooth. Yeah, like, it's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's a thing of beauty for sure. So a big takeaway for me was Niang last night. Like he had an open look. He wouldn't even shoot it. That's the reason he's on the court. Catch and shoot situations has a quick release, but he didn't really want to release last night. And just over the course of the season, can you tell me what you've seen from Daniel House and Shake Millen? And do you believe they should play more going forward? Yeah, I definitely do. Shake Milton, especially, I've always been a Shake Milton guy, like a Shake Milton fan. I think he has a really nice game, and I appreciate he's his role has fluctuated like consistently with the Sixers, but he always seems ready. Like he'll not play for three weeks, and he'll get his number called, and he'll come out and hit like four threes in a quarter, and you'll be like, oh yeah, this is Shake Milton. Like he's he's pretty good. Uh, I would like to see those guys play over Yang. Yang's been you know up and down all season. He's when he's making his shots, he's electric. He brings the energy and he brings the floor spacing. But when he's not making those shots, like you kind of alluded to, he's really not bringing much else to the floor for you. And I think that's one thing the Sixers are better at this year, roster-wise. They have, they're not relying on one-dimensional guys as much. Like last year, you had to play Matisse Thybul big minutes, who's great defensively, not great offensively. You play Farkan Korkmaz, who can shoot but isn't going to get it done defensively. This year, they're coming off the bench with DeAnthony Melton, Jalen McDaniels, Paul Reed, guys that are two-way players that, you know, you're not suffering on one end or the other when they're out there. But Niang kind of falls outside of that role because if he's not making that shot, he's not really helping you on the floor. And if he's not, you know, feeling confident with that shot, like you alluded to last night, there was the play where he had a wide open look and ended up dribbling into some weird like pull up that ended in a turnover, I think. That's not going to get it done. And if he's inside of his head like that, you, I would go to either one, Daniel House or Milton. House obviously has a little bit more size, I think, on the perimeter which is why Doc has liked him. He has the two-way game. He can D up and, and space the floor. So I wouldn't be shocked, actually, if in game three we do see uh, a little bit of Daniel House, maybe Shake Milton too, but for whatever reason, he seems to be you know a little bit further down the depth chart right now. How would you grade Doc's performance throughout the regular season and the playoffs so far? I'd probably give him a, a B plus, honestly. It's not a popular opinion in Philly. Why not? Why not? Why isn't it? You know, I think it stems from that that Hawks series two years ago mm. here in Philly where they really were upset by that Atlanta team, which is understandable because, uh, you know, I, I do think Doc made some mistakes in that series. But but since then, last regular season through last playoffs where, you know, they were missing Joel for two games in that Heat series and ended up losing in six games. I personally think if he was healthy for that series, maybe we're talking about the Sixers making the first conference finals appearance since 2001 last year. And then the narrative about Doc in Philly is very different. But now it's just, you know, two years in a row, they hit the second round, haven't been able to get past it. So there's a lot of pressure on him. But this year specifically, uh, I thought he, he handled it really well. Obviously, you saw the, the growth in Joel and where they moved him off offensively, how he kind of integrated James and Joel's two-man game. They were top 10, both ends of the floor. I thought he did a pretty good job at keeping the bench guys, you know, active throughout the year, making sure no one really, other than Cork Miles, who's been pretty consistently out of the rotation, um, he made sure that everyone got time throughout the year. You know, Montrez had a run where he was the backup. Paul Reed now has been getting a lot of burn, like Sixers fans have been asking him to. So, you know, he's not the most creative offensive or defensive coach ever, but he's, you know, a guy that the players relate to. I have never heard, you know, a sniff of unhappiness within the locker room in terms of how the players uh, view Doc. 
So to me, obviously the way he'll, he's looked will depend on this series outcome, but I think he's done, you know, a fine job so far this season and in this postseason. Let's shift to Dylan Brooks real quick, a non-Sixers conversation. <laughs> I mean, Mike, you hoop, and I don't feel like there's a problem with somebody talking trash to somebody, no matter how good they are. That's just my personal opinion. And the way Memphis has handled this, like, okay, first of all, I think Dylan Brooks is a really good basketball player that could help a really good winning team. I wouldn't personally let him go. I wouldn't personally not have him on the team anymore. But if that's your decision, why go about it publicly in that way? I think, like, almost like in relationships – you in any kind of relationship, business relationship, romantic relationship, the person should leave better off than when they got there. Like even when it ends. And I feel like you didn't leave Dylan off in a better place when he moves on to the next team. Dude, a hundred percent. I agree with you. The first thing I thought when I saw that report was it, I think yesterday that it came out, they were not going to bring him back under any circumstance was that I never remembered seeing something like that, especially when it's not even free agent rumor season. It's like, you know, they were just eliminated. The playoffs are still going on. I've never seen a report that, a you know, pending free agent that the team, you know, his incumbent team was just not going to bring him back no matter what. Usually that just happens. Like you said, behind closed doors, they'll be like, hey, you know, we want to go in a different direction. We appreciate what you did. We don't like your antics, which I think is fair because I do agree he's a productive player, but I think he hurt his own stock a lot by the not only the talking, which I don't mind. But then the lack of accountability, you know, he didn't back it up on the court and then he didn't meet with media time and time and time again. So, you know, if you are going to talk, which, is, again, is to me, is one of the best parts of basketball, a little bit of trash talk. A hundred percent. But you got to back it up on the court and then you have to be able to, you know, st- like stand up for yourself afterwards and be like, hey, like with Ja, he said that we're fine in the West thing. And then they asked him about it after the Grizzlies lost. And he said, yeah, I said it. I'll deal with the repercussions like that's what, you know. That's all Dylan Brooks really needed to say. And I do think he heard his own stock both within the Grizzlies organization and probably throughout the league's landscape with kind of the, the off-court stuff. But at the same time, I totally agree that the Grizzlies look bad in this, letting him go with you know the way the report came out. It would make you wonder as a free agent, like why would I want to come to a team that's going to kind of kick me on the way out and hurt you know that report if, you know, if he's been there for four years and the Grizzlies don't want anything to do with him another team would raise their eyebrows and be like, well, you know, what is he that bad of a person to have in the organization? And, you know, could hurt his earning power elsewhere. So I think that's, it was poorly handled definitely by Memphis. And I'm sure that, um, you know, Dylan's going to get other looks somewhere else. Obviously, like you said, he's a good defensive player when he's making a shot, he can shoot it. Um, So it's not like he's going to be out of the league, but I think it's, you know, he, he didn't help himself. And I also, I think both were in the wrong, I guess, if you could say, I don't think the Grizzlies handle it well, but I think Dylan also, did some damage to his own reputation this postseason. Yeah, I mean, I think it's okay for him to talk crap, talk trash, and it's okay for LeBron to show him that there's levels to this. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. So let's go with the Sixers. Is this a championship or bust season? Let me give you a hypothetical scenario. I think Denver's coming out the West at this point. You know, they play against Denver. It goes to game seven. Denver wins. Does this see, I guess it's bringing it back to that old Giannis question. Is this season a failure at that point? There's no such thing as failure in sports combo. There's, it's, <laughs> uh, no, but honestly, it seems like everything's been championship or bust within in Philly for the past few years. And every time they fall short, it leads to some sort of a shakeup with the, you know, a few years ago was the coach, the front office. Ever since then, each year it's been tweaking the roster. This year, obviously, the main thing is going to be James Harden's future. As soon as the this season ends, it's going to turn to is he going back to Houston? Is he going to stay in Philly? Is 
So, you know, winning a championship, I think, would obviously go a long way to smooth some of those questions over. But to me, they just have to get out of this round, honestly, and I think this season will be viewed as success. It's been this, you know, this second round wall for the Sixers ever since this NBA era started. Um, five out of six years now they've got to the conference semifinals, but not one conference finals appearance, not one conference finals appearance since 01 when they went to the finals with Iverson. So, you know, I don't think you can skip steps in the process in the NBA. So obviously winning a championship would be great, but I think to have to leave the season feeling positive as an organization, I think you just got to get to this conference finals and get past Boston specifically Boston. Cause they've kind of really been like this, you know, thing that Embiid's had such a tough time getting past the third time these two teams have been playing in the Tatum and Embiid era, Tatum and the Celtics have dominated. So, you know, if they lose this series, I think there's going to be some serious soul searching in the organization, which will probably lead to changes. I don't know if that's, you know, the doc leaving. I don't know if that's Harden going elsewhere and the Tobias, you know, pieces around MB getting shifted. But I do think it's, if not championship or bust, definitely like conference finals, finals, or there's going to be another major shakeup. All right, last thing. Embiid, he's now an MVP. Where does he rank among, even though his story is still being written, where does he rank among the all-time great Sixers? Obviously, you have Dr. J, you have Barkley, you have Iverson. I'm probably missing some people here. Moses Malone. But where does he rank in there as of right now? Yeah, I mean, he's definitely starting to, you know, climb up that list. He's starting to climb up the record books this year, too, in the organization, which I noticed. Like, he passed Iguodala on the all-time scoring list this year to move up to, like, I think he's eighth all time in Sixers now, like rebounds. He's like top 10. So he's like slowly starting to get up there. All those guys you named, obviously, Barkley didn't win a title with the Sixers, but, you know, Dr. J won a title. Iverson brings them to the finals. I think, like you said, it's still being written. If he can at least get this team to a finals or potentially win them a ring, he he jumps, you know, right to the top. Oh, yeah. Otherwise, he's, you know, right in the thick of things. By the time his, he's done, he could be – I don't think he'll ever be – viewed quite like Iverson because Iverson was just such a cultural he, icon, right? A yeah. Once in a generation type thing that just, you know, he'll never quite be on that level, but he'll be top five. I think in that conversation of best all time, as long as he, you know, keeps on the path that he's currently on for sure. Mike, great stuff. You're always welcome back on the show. Where can we find you? Social media, your written work and everything else. Yeah, man. I appreciate it. I always love talking hoops with you, man. And uh, I'm on Twitter still at the real Mike KB. Uh, I'm glad I have at the real at my handle because they took my blue check away. So now, you know, if it's they the... took everybody's blue check away, huh? yeah, except, man, except so... LeBron, except LeBron, I guess Elon paid for bronze. Uh, it's, check. it's like the wild, wild west out there, man. You don't know <laughs> what's going on. But uh, yeah, I'm at the real Mike KB. There's a link there to my CBS Sports uh, article profile with everything I write there. Um, yeah, so you can find my work there. I appreciate you having me on, man. Always a pleasure talking hoops with you. Anytime, Mike. You're always welcome back on the show and talk soon. Yeah, bro. Thank you. Hey, there it is. Another episode of Combo's Court is in the books. Thank you to everyone who tunes into the show across the globe. Big shouts to Mike for joining in. We appreciate you. Rate and review the show wherever you listen to Combo's Court. And share this episode with a friend. Share it on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. Take a screenshot of this episode and post it on your IG stories. You can tag me on there at 1-2-Combo. That's O-N-E-T-W-O-C-O-M-B-O. On Twitter, it's Combo's Court, same name as the podcast, C-O-M-B-O-S-C-O-U-R-T. And be on the lookout for the next episode of Combo's Court. Combo, out.